Well, good morning, everyone. Tim, I think I'm a little loud. I'm a little hollow here. There you go. That's better. How's everybody doing? That's great to see everybody here. It's always it's always great to see everybody on this beautiful Lord's Day. And just want to thank God for, you know, allowing us to exist another day, uh, to be able to participate in the service and be able to wake up um, you know, just wake up with, a, with breath in our lungs and the opportunity to spend another day for his glory. Do you might want to just turn me down just a little bit more if you can. There you go. So I just want to acknowledge that reality um, uh, of just the fact that God is uh, on the throne and, and he's given us life in his son, Jesus Christ. And we have this beautiful opportunity to come together on the Lord's day to gather around the throne of Christ and to worship his name and to give him all the honor and all the glory. We're going to continue this morning uh, through the book of Romans. If you would please uh, turn uh, to the book of Romans, chapter 12, chapter 12. Yeah, you'll have to fuss the buttons a little bit more and get me uh, to where I'm not sounding so hollow up here. Chapter 12 this morning, we're going to be reading from We'll be reading the first two verses today, and that will be our focus for today's preaching. We're reading from the King James Version this morning, starting in chapter 12. The Word of God reads, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. Let us pray. Father, we just come to the throne of grace this morning. Lord, we approach you today, not in cowardly fear, but in humble boldness, Lord. Lord, we're thankful that we can come to the throne of grace this morning because of the perfect righteous blood of our Savior. And Lord, we, we come to worship your name, to glorify your name, Lord. We are a grateful people, Lord. Thank you for sending your son to die for us, to deliver us from sin. Lord, we ask today that you would just open the hearts of your people today to receive your word. And Lord, that your spirit would begin to operate here today, begin to remove any hindrances, any obstacles that would get in the way of hearing what you'd say to us this morning or get in the way from allowing us to fully worship you in spirit and in truth. Lord, we honor you today with the proclamation of your word. Lord, I ask that you would help me this morning, Lord, that you would enable me by your power, that you would give me the ability to preach your truth, to rightly divide the word. Grant me by the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord, to proclaim your truth to your people. In Christ's name I pray. Amen and so be it. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable, to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. It's interesting here because as we've been going through the book of Romans, we hear Paul continually preaching repetitively the gospel of Christ 
to the world, to the Jews and to the Gentiles as he's showing them what the true meaning of the law. He's preaching the, the holy God of Israel to all people that all people can come to God through his son and be reconciled with the perfect righteousness that's given to us by Jesus Christ. Paul here in the, in the first verse, verse says it, I beseech you, brethren, and that word beseech means that Paul was literally urging, urging his brethren to recognize this reality of the mercies of God. That they would recognize this reality of salvation that he has been continually proclaiming through the first 11 chapters before we get to chapter 12. Paul is literally urging them to come to this God, to hear the message that he is laying upon them. Similar to Paul's statements in 1 Corinthians 9.16, where Paul says, For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of. And he uses the word, for necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. This is the picture he's he's trying to put forth. Another version reads, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. For I am under, he says, compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. And here, I think what Paul is trying to communicate here is that he's literally under the God-breathed compulsion, an urge to declare the realities of what it truly means to be justified by God. What it looks like in the believer's life in whom God's mercy has come into contact with. Compulsion really is the action or state of forcing or being forced to do something. An irresistible urge to behave in a certain way. Obviously, we know when, when God comes upon us, he enables us, he gives us the desires of our hearts, he, he moves upon the appetites of our being. We know that we are, are pulled forward to do these things, but the reality here is what's trying, what's being communicated here is that there is a urge from on high. I mean, Paul obviously never had these urges when he was unconverted. But Paul recognized this reality that he's been preaching because we know Paul's past. We know Paul and his credentials of his past. We know he understands very clearly a misuse of the law. He very clearly understands the misuse of God's holiness or God's law or God's righteousness. He understands this reality of being truly converted. But he doesn't just stop there. He says, what does a converted person look like? Someone who has been moved by the mercies of God. And this is where Paul's urge is coming from. This is where that demanding presence of God has literally overtaken him to where the Bible says that he's beseeching them, he's urging them, he's begging them, he's literally calling on them to understand this reality of what it truly means that when you've been, when you've made contact with the mercy of God, this is what your life will look like. Paul cried out even in 2 Corinthians, he says, for the love of Christ, it constraineth us. It moves us. In Acts 4, verse 20, he writes, Luke writes, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Therefore, in other words, this, this whole argument of the first 11 chapters is suited to show the obligation on us the people of God, to devote ourselves to God. Such displays of God's mercy should induce both the Jews and the Gentiles to consecrate themselves to God and not be conformed to the world. Paul finishes the doctrinal part of his epistle and proceeds to the practical. He had preached salvation and now he was showing them that the foundation of, of God's mercy was really the, the fountain that produces godly behavior. And I don't know if you recognize this even yourself, you understand this reality, if you've really tasted the mercies of God, if you've truly been converted, that you understand this, that, that when you've been converted, you've been transformed, you're no longer conformed to the world, 
Something happens to us under the power of God that moves us to do things in such a way where we are literally through with ourselves and we cast ourselves down upon the mercy of God. And this is really the sanctifying reality of our faith. This is really what separates us from all other religions of the world, right? Man's attempt to deal with sin, deal with themselves, and to deal with God. Paul clears it up very clearly throughout these 11 chapters that these aren't things that we can do of ourselves. Even the the presenting of ourselves to God, fully consecrated to God, is not an act that we can do of our own will. This is a reality when God certainly changes us and makes us into a new creature where old things have passed away and all things become New. And this is the sanctifying reality in what Paul is preaching. This eloquent appeal proves that acceptable obedience is always the grateful response of redeemed hearts to the multiplied mercies of God. Paul here entreats rather than commands, underlines this voluntary nature of the response, which a real experience of these compassions should constrain. In other words, Paul isn't necessarily just commanding, commanding, commanding. What he's saying that these appeals, these, these, these passions of the believer's heart should be in such a way where we feel that inner compulsion to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow Christ. It should be a part of the Christian experience. This reality of totally coming to God with everything that we are. It is the great reality of Christ's sacrifice which has swept all dead victims from off the altar of God. And this is the body as raised to new life in Christ which is to be presented to God. Such living sacrifices are holy and acceptable to God solely through the efficacy of Christ's redemptive travail. Believers find their acceptance with God through his beloved son in whom he is well pleased. It's interesting because we have to understand this reality before anything else makes any sense. And I think this is why Paul spent so much time dealing with this reality of salvation that can only come through Jesus Christ. I mean, God said, this is my son for whom I am well pleased. And it is only Christ on our behalf, on the behalf of the believer in whom God is well pleased. God, is only, God can only be pleased with us based upon what Christ has done for us and finished upon the cross. None of the doctrines of the gospel are de- designed to be cold and barren speculations. They bear on the hearts and lives of people, and the apostle therefore calls on those to whom he wrote to dedicate themselves without reserve unto God. And this whole idea flows in the previous chapter, and the idea here from Romans eleven thirty six. if you're following along, um, the Bible says, for of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. For of him, through him, to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Philippians 1.21, Paul cried out, for to, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Colossians 3.4 He writes, when Christ, who is our life, our entire existence, encapsulizes the entirety of the Christian existence, of our lives. You see, we are to give ourselves to God fully, totally devoted, completely, exhaustively, in life and in death. It's the entirety of our being to Christ. And oh, what a beautiful thing that is. When we can grasp this understanding by the Holy Spirit, 
that the entire meaning of life is Christ. Whether that be in life or whether that be in our death. This is the acceptable sacrifice to God. Is that when we grip and grasp this, this understanding that it is of him and through him and to, who him, to him are all things. There's nothing outside. There's nothing autonomous outside of this reality in the Christian life. Your pain. It may be your depression. It may be sickness. It may be adversity. It may be persecution. It may be total and utter rejection. But if we understand that this fits in to the reality of the Christian life, we won't grow bitter and unforgiving and angry, but we will learn to understand these things that they've been given to us for the sole fact to shape us and to mold us more into the image, not of the world, not conformed to the world, but conformed to Christ. Amen. God ordains these things ultimately, obviously for the good of his saints, to make us holy, not just for the pure fact of walking around saying, I'm holy because I do these things, but holy for the living God that our sacrifice would be holy to God without reserve. The idea here, it, it, just, it, it just continues really, obviously through the entirety of the book of Romans. Paul said even in, in Philippians 4.18, he says, Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma and acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. You see, Paul was urging them on, not by some outward pretense or false piety, but by the mercies of God, something he preached to them repeatedly throughout the last 11 chapters, basically declaring that the doctrine I preached to you is not some empty theological statement, or as Jonathan Edwards calls it, intellectual salvation but dogma that produces a practical manifestation in the lives of God's people. Your behavior will always reflect what you serve or who you serve. This is why Paul says, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed in your mind. Your orthodoxy will always determine your orthopraxy. Paul was also contending with the vices of his day. Don't you think that Paul dealt with vices of his day very similar to our day? Probably a lot worse and the cultural idols of his time. At one time, I believe it was in, in the, uh, I think it was the book of Galatians where, you know, Paul, or I think also the book of Acts where it says that at one point in Athens that he was walking through there and the idols were so thick that he could barely walk through the city. You know, Paul in his time and in his ministry would have very clearly understood the reality of idolatry and gross, disgusting perversity of the day. He would have understood this. But also he would have understood that the power of the gospel was really the only answer and remedy to all these things. And this is why he didn't wax eloquent with much words and intellectualism. But he trusted in the gospel's power. He trusted in the power of the gospel. During this time of, of Paul's ministry, there's, you know, even what Paul is dealing with here in the book of Romans, he's dealing with a lot of philosophical, what we'd call philosophical dualism. And this whole idea is that, you know, our soul is really separated from our body. In other words, today we could call it easy believism. It's where this idea is where we can basically spit out a few words, say we're saved and continue to live like the devil. Basically, it's this idea that you don't know my heart or you can't judge a book by its cover. But in reality, Paul is saying just the opposite. You can judge a book by its cover. You can see. Jesus says you will know them by their fruit. There are characteristics of being a Christian that testify the reality that you've been transformed and converted. Trust me. If we're walking around, we're conformed to the world, we still live like the world. There's a good chance you're still of the world. And this is why we have to check to see whether or not we're in the faith 
daily. I mean, this isn't something you just got to sit there and stress and worry about your salvation consistently. But the reality is if there's no emphatic change in your life, that you're not seeing biblical fruit of the Holy Spirit testifying to the reality that you've been converted, that there's no change. I think it's what, I remember it was John the Baptist when he was preaching to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He's saying, produce fruit that testify that you're of God. Produce fruit that, that, that would basically profess that, that you're following Christ. I understand that there's much challenge in our lives and there's, there's much to contend with every day, but this reality of a holiness that's given to us of God should be present in our everyday life. This philosophical dualism is really, you know, it, it, it's, it really has intoxicated a lot of the fabric of American Christianity. There's a lot of this belief where we can just say the sinner's prayer, right? And we can just go on and live however we want to live. We're saved. We're right with God. You can't judge me. I've asked Jesus into my heart. But yet all of your desires and all of your affections and all of your appetites declare otherwise. You haven't been weaned from the world. This whole idea of being presented to God, listen, is all of you. Not just some of you, not just part of you, not just the stuff that you don't like, not just the bad things in our life. It's everything in our life we offer to God. Basically saying that, you know, Paul was saying that there is no such thing as philosophical dualism in the Christian faith. Basically, what he is saying, this entirety of the gospel encompasses all of life, encompasses everything about us as individuals. And this is why Paul spent the first 11 chapters, because he was showing that this gospel produces godly people. The true biblical gospel produces godly people, a holy people, a blameless people. Those who present their bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, the Bible says, and acceptable to God. The idea contained in sacrifice is that of, really, dedication. We see a reflection of the book of Leviticus. We see these Old Testament rituals and ceremonies and temple sacrifices. And this is really the idea that we're getting here is when Paul is using this language to communicate uh, symbolically to the people when he's talking about sacrifices, he's talking about dedication, he's talking about presenting ourselves as a living sacrifice to God. The picture here is we are to dedicate our bodies to God. But there is to be this distinction between the old Jewish sacrifice and the Christian sacrifice, the one which was of dead animals, the other one of living men and women. The worshiper must offer or present before God himself with all his living energies and powers directed consciously to God's service. This is the reality. The qualification sought for in the Jewish sacrifices is that they were to be unblemished, without spot. In like manner, the Christian sacrifice must be holy and pure in God's sight. Otherwise, it cannot be acceptable to him. Obviously, we're accepted, brothers and sisters, with God through Jesus Christ. We know that we're fully accepted and God is fully satisfied with the finished work of Jesus Christ and what he accomplished on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And then he's seated by the right hand of the Father, making intercession not for the world, but for his people that he rules and he reigns. We understand this reality, but the reality as well is also a holy life. Because the true gospel, when it makes contact with you, isn't Jesus coming to live in your sinful heart. It's God removing your heart and giving you a new heart that's prepared for the Spirit of God to come down and dwell inside of you, to make you a new person. One who is totally dead to self and willing to give themselves fully to God. I like what Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.6. He says, therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God, 
which is in you. Or as another translation says, fan into flames the spiritual gift that God gave you. See, Paul's talking about this reality, obviously, that we are uh, made right with God through Jesus Christ, but there's another reality to the Christian life where we need to do something. We need to do something. Paul's saying, stir it up. Fan the flame. Shake it up. Do whatever it takes to get yourself into that place where you can fully give yourself over to God. I beseech you, he says, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable, logical service. And do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Paul lists four areas of our lives that must be presented Four elements of our lives must be presented to God as our living sacrifice. And if you're taking notes, these four areas are such. The soul. Number two, the body. Number three, the mind. And number four, the will. These are the four areas that must be presented to God as the Bible defines a living sacrifice. It's the soul. It's the body. It's the mind and the will. First one being the soul. Paul says, I beseech you, urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is the whole idea here that's presented even in 2 Timothy, where he says, if a man therefore purge himself from what is dishonorable, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified, holy, and fit for the master's use, and prepared unto every, every good work. I mean, this is the, this is the idea that he's making here with, with, with the soul. I mean, before we can begin anywhere, and I think this is why Paul was so emphatic about the first 11 chapters, really dealing with the gospel, and the gospel's power, and dealing with salvation, and who God is, and um, the gospel of Christ. I think this is why Paul spent so much time, in because he understood that everything... Outside of this really isn't going to make any sense and it's unachievable if we first haven't given our souls to God through Jesus Christ. I mean, if we're unconverted, sanctification means nothing. You've just built another cult. You've just built another religion. The whole reality is we have to start first with the soul. The seedbed of who we are. First have to be submitted to God. And the only way that can happen is if God himself grants us a new heart, gives us a new heart, puts his spirit within us, causes us to walk in his ways, causes us to love the things that he loves, hating the things that he hates, no longer being a slave to this world, but being a slave to Jesus Christ. Willfully. This is where it all begins. We see ourselves in truth before a holy and righteous God. And we see ourselves as sinners by nature and sinners by practice. And we understand that this reality is that first and foremost, if our soul isn't saved, we're damned. We're doomed. Do you understand this reality? It's a terrifying reality to even preach about. But it's true. If we are not right with God in his biblical prescriptive way, we're in trouble. The Bible says no one can come to the Father unless he himself, God, draws them to the Son. The reality is this as well, that no one comes to God. John 14, 6 comes to the Father unless they come through Christ. Jesus said, I am the way and I am the truth and I am the life. And a lot of times, you know, we would like God to bless our way, our idea. But in reality, God rejects that because God doesn't accept our way, our ideas. He only accepts one way and that's the way, the truth, and the life. God has presented his son 
as a sacrifice on behalf of his people. And he appeals to us to repent. He commands all men and women everywhere to repent. Why? Because he set apart a day where he's going to judge the world in righteousness by his son, Jesus Christ. Do you realize this? Reality. Have we come to God his way? Or do we come our own way and expect God to bless it? Without biblical repentance, there is no salvation. It doesn't matter how many times we've said the sinner's prayer. If there is no biblical repentance, there is no salvation. We must repent of our sin. We must call upon the name of the Lord while he still may be found. And all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Jesus even said, all who come to me, I will in no wise cast out. It's important to understand this first step, if we can call it that, this first element, this first reality is that we must give our soul to God in humble repentance and faith in his son. We must turn away, all away from our old self, 180 degrees, and turn towards God and trust in his son, Jesus Christ, for salvation. You see, the moment we do that, the Bible says that we've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's Son. We've been delivered from the wrath of God and placed in the eternal home of Christ Jesus our Lord. I appeal to you today in in, in love and in... I urge you, brothers and sisters, if you have not come to Christ... God's way. I'd appeal to you and beg you today by the mercies of God to come to Christ that you may be saved and made right with God. That you become a true worshiper of the living God. Which brings us to the second point in Paul's point when when he's dealing with the body. I beseech you and urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. That you present your bodies a living sacrifice. This destroys philosophical dualism. He's talking about the entirety. Yes, our bodies, which operate from a cleansed and purified and new heart, new desires given to us by God. We behave in a certain way with our bodies. Our bodies become a living sacrifice. How? By the mercies of God. Not by some new program that we learn from the latest book on the shelf. But the reality is that we understand the mercy of God and that becomes the premise, the very foundation which produces holiness in our lives. We become that living sacrifice only when you understand the mercies of God. And that usually comes through, only comes through the conversion of the soul. Paul says in Romans 6 verse 12, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lust and do not present your members. Once again, we see the language of presenting. Do not present your members as what? Instruments of what? Unrighteousness to sin. But present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. 1 Thessalonians 5, 21 says, Prove all things. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from all appearances of evil. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. This is how important it is to understand this reality of our humanity. Humanity is unspiritual. Natural isn't sin. What is sin is the nature, the fallen corrupt nature of our sinful nature. But the body being converted Obviously, being converted, having a heart that is converted 
The body itself will show this reality that our bodies, the instruments in which God has given us, will not be used for unholy purposes. But it'll be an instrument in the hands of God, fit for the master's use, used in godliness, used in righteousness, used for the purposes of God to glorify his name. And this is a great struggle, right? How many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of us, should we say, struggle with this reality? I mean, this is why Paul is putting it here. And this is why Paul's not pointing to himself. He's pointing to the mercies of God. The only way you'll ever be an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing in God's sight, walking in holiness, is if you understand the mercy that God has been reaching out to you through the entire 11 chapters. I've been preaching to you the mercy of God. That despite yourself, despite your sin, despite your hatred, despite your rebellion, despite your perversion and your addictions, Christ died for the ungodly. That you can be made right with God. That you can be made pleasing in His sight. Understand the mercies of God and you will want to be pleasing in His sight. To understand this, it's going to provoke you to holiness. Do you understand how radically depraved you were? How lost you were? The enormity of your sin and crimes against the holy God and what you deserved. And the fact that you are not getting that punishment. You're not getting what you deserve, but instead you get the mercies of God. And this provokes us to holy living. Saying, my God, You did that for me. You did that for me. How can I love you more? How can I obey you? I'll give you my whole life. Could you imagine the other side of the coin? And splitting hell wide open? And falling under the eternal wrath and hatred of God for all eternity? But no. For his people, Christ came And God gave you mercy. The mercies of God provoke us to holy living. Not so we can just walk around and show off and say I'm holy with a bunch of do's and don'ts. But it's a reality of your infatuation with God. It's your worship. It's your acceptable worship. It's logical. It's not illogical. It's reasonable. Christ died for you. Live for Him. Put away our idols and live totally and fully to God. Do you realize how short life is? How fast your life is going by? We have a short term, short term. And God has a million ways of taking people off this planet, taking people out of this world. And most of the time, you don't get a deathbed experience. Usually, you're not expecting it. We want to be ready. We want to be utilized for the glory of God. We want our lives to be given to Christ. Our lives, what's left of our lives, we want to donate that, invest that, exhaust that, completely spend that on Christ. Paul Washer said, if God has your heart, he has your body. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Jesus said in Luke 6.35, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, the body moves. Out of this abundance of the heart, a new heart, mind you, a new heart produces a godly life. I'm not saying you're going to be perfect. Don't get me wrong. I'm not preaching entire sanctification in the sense of perfectionism. I'm not preaching that. So we're made perfect in Christ, yes. I'm saying we're entirely sanctified in Jesus Christ, but our lives are a continual progression, right, of growing in holiness, right? Continual death to self, the more of Christ can be revealed. Which brings us to our third point, the mind. I beseech you, urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. 
And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Really to conform really mean is really made, that word means made to resemble or basically assuming the same form. And what he's saying here is that we should not resemble the world. We should not resemble the world. Paul said, come out ye from among them, right? And be different. We're not to be weird, but we're to be different. We're to be a holy people. The difference that we are from the world is not that we're weird, but that we are holy and that we are lovers of truth and we live a different way. What does that look like? This could mean like you being at work and you got all your buddies gathered around. They're telling their dirty, filthy, rotten jokes. And the manifestation of their love of the world is all around you, but yet you don't participate in that. You're able to live amongst it, but you're able to be holy and governed by God, showing them that you are from another world. That you walk to the beat of a different drum. That you have been conformed, that you've been conformed to Christ, that you have been changed, as Romans 8:29 says, for whom he did foreknow, foreknow. He also did predestinate to what? To be conformed to what? The image of his son. This is what we're to be conformed to. When God has predestined us and and changed us and transformed us, we're no longer conformed to the world. But we're transformed, we're conformed to the image of God's son. Paul says, be not conformed to this world. Be not conformed to this world. Is that difficult to understand? Is that, is that a hard one? Because for me, it's I, I get it, right? I mean, I can it's just a straight reading. Don't be conformed. Don't be like the world. That's what he's saying. But today, we got all kinds of ministries out there that want to be just like the world. And they try to sanctify it. Nowhere in Scripture does God sanctify worldliness. Nowhere in the Bible does God applaud worldliness. And pride. Nowhere. It's not in the Bible. As a matter of fact, God condemns it. Paul right here says it. Be not conformed to the world. Don't act like the world. Don't have the same affections as the world. Don't look for the trophies of the world. Don't fight for the titles of the world. Everywhere we look in our day, there's something pulling us in. Wanting our attention, wanting our love, wanting our affection, wanting our worship. Everywhere you look, we become addicted to the point we don't even realize we're addicted. That's bad. It's almost getting used. Do you ever turn the lights off and over a period of time you begin, you can see in the dark? That's what it is. We've gotten used to seeing in the dark. We don't even realize we're in the dark anymore. It's become so normal. And trust me, I'm not just, I'm not pointing my finger at everybody else. I'm talking about this reality. It's there. I, I see it and feel it every day. It's always there gnawing. And this is why it's so important to be in prayer, to be seeking the Lord, to be in his word, to spend time with the saints, to be in church, to be here with the family of God, to be accountable, to be encouraged, to be in a safe zone. So important, so important. Christ has given you these things that you can walk in this world and be victorious. This idea of being transformed really, in Greek, it really is this word metamorphosized. It's really being morphed into a different style of living. It's really to change our natural disposition and temper of man from a state of enmity of God and his law into the image of God or into the disposition and temper conformed to the will of God. This is the transformation. Nothing you become a superhero. A lot of people think that every single moment of their life needs to be a mountaintop experience. And that's why a lot of people fall into sin because they, they don't like their boring life and they constantly are after stimuli because what does social media do to us? What does the world do to us today? Do you realize every time that you get a like on a photo that you put up, 
It's the, it, reduce, it produces the same response of adrenaline in your system as it is when you make a basket in basketball. Do you realize that, that, that we have so engaged with electrical friendships that we have become addicted, adrenaline addicted, right, to these reactions to such, a, to such an extent that we've really got to learn to untangle ourselves and literally be what the Bible says, transformed, metamorphosized, changed from these realities. Not that you have to run from social media and say social media is bad. That's just a good example of the reality of how we're so affected by the world and what the world thinks of us. We're so concerned of what other people say about us and how we look before others. It becomes a dangerous, dangerous addiction. And this is why the Bible says we need to be renewed, renewing of the mind. We need to be renovated. We need to be restored, this word means, to our former state or to a good state. After our decay and deprivation, to rebuild and to repair. This is the whole idea of our mind. We're to love the Lord God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength. We're to give ourselves completely to God, our soul to God, our instrument, our body, our our vessels to God, our thinking to God. We're to take every thought captive, anything that confronts truth, we're to hold it captive and force it to obey the gospel. John Murray writes, the dedication of the body to the service of God is to be informed and directed by the mind, for it is here described as your rational worship. The superiority of the new covenant is shown in the replacement of the ritual offering of a dead body by the rational consecration of a living body. The lesson to be derived from the term rational is that we are not spiritual in the biblical sense, except as the use of our bodies is characterized by conscious, intelligent, consecrated devotion to the service of God. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, it says, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. In the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over, okay, here you go, given themselves over to lewdness, to, the, to work all types of uncleanness with greediness. This is really a complete opposite of what Paul is telling us here. Once we dedicate and present ourselves to God by the mercies of God, we see the reality of the fruit that show up in our lives that are exactly against everything that we see here in the unbeliever's heart as they see that they walk, as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind with lewdness and uncleanness and they're greedy. This should never characterize the Christian life. Paul goes on to say in verse 20, But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct. The old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust. And be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And that you put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. You see that? That's the reality right there. This is what we're presenting to Christ. The reality of a changed and transformed and renewed mind. Which brings us to the last and final point is the will. The will. Jesus says, not my will, but your will, Father. This reality of this is no longer my will be done, but now my life, because it's been sanctified, it's been set apart, it's been presented to God, that the entire will of my life is based upon the will of God. A lot of teachers and books out there try to teach us of what is the will of God for my life. You guys have seen those books, and obviously it's, it's important. So it's a question that a lot of people ask. God, what is, what is the will for my life? What, what is the will? And they, they, they spend their whole entire life 
wondering what the will of God is for their life, then they die. When in reality, the will of God for their life is Jesus Christ. It's the gospel of Christ. The will of God for our life is Jesus Christ. You understand that? How simple that is. Because once we get that right, once our lives are completely devoted to Christ, everything else just falls into place. Everything else falls into place. He's the prime product. Everything else flows out of that reality. The problem is that we want to find our success in life without Christ. But when we come to Christ on his terms, we have come ultimately with the will of God for our lives. And at that point, you will start to see the reality of the will of God in your life begin to show up. That you may prove what is good and acceptable in the perfect will of God. God's will becomes our will. Hebrews 10, 5 through 7 says, Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering, being Jesus Christ, you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifice for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. See, Jesus didn't have all these other uh, I mean, he could say, oh, my will was to be a carpenter for Christ or a carpenter for God. But he never says that. Because all of life, everything that pertains to our life, whether that be the soul, the body, the mind, the will, it's all encapsulated within Christ. And our will is Jesus Christ to be known by him and to make him known to others, wherever God puts us. In whatever we find our hands doing, we're to do all things unto the glory of God. Romans 3.25 says, God presented him, Jesus Christ, as the atoning sacrifice through faith in his blood in order to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had passed over the sins committed beforehand. In John 10, verse 18, it says, Jesus says, no one takes it from me. Talking about his life. But I lay it down myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. Galatians 3, 1 through 5 says, Paul says, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself who presented himself, who gave himself as really the perfect and only acceptable sacrifice to God for our sins. That he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And this is really the summation of what Paul is declaring here that they would certainly understand the reality of what he's been preaching to them. That listen, yes, I'm, I, I'm declaring to you the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm showing you how we can truly be reconciled to God through Christ. I'm showing you the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ giving to us freely by faith in God, in Christ alone. And what, what that actually, the operation of the Holy Spirit in an individual's life, what does that look like? And how are we to deal with our own lives? How does this apply to us today as, as believers of Jesus Christ? How are we to apply everyday living when we, when we come in contact with people that may bother us? Maybe it's a spousal argument. Maybe it's our jobs. I don't know what it is. But we've got to approach these things by remembering what? The mercies of God. Because we understand where we came from, we're going to have a whole different view I want we come into contact with. Before you flare up in haste and say something that you, you should say, first remember before you deal with the other person, remember where you came from. Remember where God has taken you. Think of your sin. Think of your lifestyle and what God's brought you out of. Remember the mercies of God. In every arena of your life, dealing with life. I know this is challenging. Without the grace of God, we could never do this. But the reality is, this is this really is the idea of God in holy living. 
like to finish with this application from John Bunyan's book, The Acceptable Sacrifice. He, he had written this book. This was his final writings right before he died. And this book, if you don't have the book, I would really encourage you. It's a thin book. I'd encourage you to get it. He says that there are four things that are acceptable to God. The first one, he says, the sacrifice of the body of Christ for our sins. Of this you read in Hebrews 10. For there it is preferred above all burnt offerings and sacrifices. It is this that pleases God. It is this that sanctifies. And so setteth the people acceptable in the sight of God. Understand this. Understand this today. It's not your good works that make you right with God. It's not your religion. It's not your father's faith. It's not your church. It's not how many times you pray, how many times you read the Bible, how many verses you can memorize. The reality is the only thing that makes you pleasing with God is the pleasure of Jesus Christ. It's the only thing. Number two, the unfeigned love to God. Unfeigned love to God. What does that mean? Not counterfeit, not hypocritical, but real, sincere, genuine love to God. Well, I don't know. I'm tired of the Sunday morning show-offs. I'm just burned out. We don't need any more show-offs. We need people that are truly, genuinely, sincerely, real worshipers of God that truly love God. To love the Lord thy God with all our heart and all our understanding, with all our soul, is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Number three, to walk holy, humbly, and obediently towards and before God. Let me repeat that real quick. To walk holy, humbly, and obediently towards and before God. 1 Samuel 15 says this, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. Brothers and sisters, so one thing you can hold me accountable on, you know, is that I would always walk humbly and kindly towards you all and towards all. That, you know, that we never get puffed up, never become prideful and desire fame and attention and adoration from people, but to be truly humble, holy, and obedient towards God. And the last one is, Psalm 51, 17, that the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. But note, by the way, that this broken, this broken and contrite heart, he says, is thus excellent only to God. O God, saith he, thou will not despise it, by which is implied the world has not this esteem or respect for such a heart as yours or for one that is of a broken and contrite spirit. No, no. A man and a woman that is blessed with a broken heart is so far off from getting by the esteem with the world that they are but burdens and troubled houses wherever they go. What's he saying here? He's saying those that are broken and contrite, those that live this life will be a consistent burden to the world. John 15, 19 says, if you were of the world, Jesus says, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. 2 Corinthians 2, 16 says, to the one we are the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other the aroma of life leading to life. And who is sufficient to these things? So I beseech you, brothers and sisters, this morning, I urge you in the name of our Lord and King and Savior, Jesus Christ, that by the mercies of God, you present your bodies as living sacrifices, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And that you would not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind and that you'd prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. 
We thank you for the conviction of sin. Lord, we ask that you would grant us repentance and faith. That we would turn away from the idols of this world and be conformed to the world, being addicted to the world, Lord. Oh, Lord, that you would draw out your sword and cut these cords from us, Lord, that we could freely run to you and worship you this morning. Deliver us, oh God, from ourselves. Make your name known in our lives. Lord, help us, Lord, to completely devote our lives to you. Help us to present ourselves something that's pleasing in your sight, Lord, and not an abomination. Lord, help us to get honest with ourselves this morning and be humble and repent. Lord, that you'd be pleased to transform us, to renew our minds, to cause us by your great power to live for you and you alone. Cause your people to adore you again, God. Above all the trinkets and ornaments of this world, Cause us by your power to love you totally and fully, to completely be devoted to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. And so be it.